3: Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and
4: feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to settle the age-old question, who's the better guitarist, Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton? Actually, we're not going to answer that at all. Instead, we're going to look at the much deeper and more important question. Is it better to burn out or fade away? Yeah, that really is the issue here. I mean, it's not so much
3: about the people actually feuding. Unlike a lot of our episodes, the principals here actually got along and even revered each other. It's more that they represent opposing ideas. I wrote about this in my book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. And I really believe that you won't find a better example of one musician in a way benefiting from burning out. And another musician, in some ways, being punished because he was able to fade away. You know, I recently invoked the Dark Knight in our David Crosby episode, and I might have to do it again. (laughs) You know, you either die the hero or live long enough to become the villain. That's the story of Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton to me. I can't wait to dive in. Let's get into this mess.
4: You know, for all the flack that Clapton gets in later years for playing, like, boring workmanlike blues, he actually had a really complicated family upbringing that contributed to his really intense inner pain. As a boy, he grew up believing that his mother was actually his elder sister, and he was raised by his grandparents. And his mother was a teenager who had an affair with a Canadian soldier who was just sort of passing through. And when Eric learned the truth as an adolescent, it really traumatized him. And he, he withdrew into his music and his guitar. And he started listening to old blues guys like Elmore James and Big Bill Brunsey and Robert Johnson. And then he went over towards the, the, the Chicago blues players like Muddy Waters and Buddy Guy and T-Bone Walker, guys like that. And uh, he started playing in a local band outside of London called The Roosters before joining The Yardbirds, who were London's—one of their best uh, blues bands up there with Alexis Corner— And they were famous for sort of banging out these really fast and furious versions of Chuck Berry songs and Slim Harpo songs. And Clapton would later say this was kind of his apprentice period. And the band, uh, they backed uh, Sonny Boy Williamson for a while. They did an album together, which is actually pretty good. And uh, just to sort of let you know, like, Clapton's, where his head was at at this period. He would later say that he didn't think, he didn't really respect Sonny Boy for a while. He didn't think he was one of the, like, the good blues guys. So uh, when he first met him, he was kind of stuck up around him. And then Sonny Boy very, very quickly put him in his place. But then the band, as the 60s progressed and sort of the the Mersey beat thing got bigger in London, um, the Yardbirds progressed more towards, like, the pop sound. In 65, they released a single called For Your Love which is, it's a pretty innovative, way ahead of its time sounding record. It almost sounds like, on oh, like Indian drones through like heavily distorted guitar. It's a cool record, but Clapton absolutely loathed it. He thought this was like pop crap. So he quit the band. He said, you know, the whole thing had gotten so businesslike with finances and promotion. We became machines instead of human beings. So he, he left the, left the hit group. It's funny
3: with Clapton because he does have this reputation now, like you said, as being this very middle-of-the-road classic rocker. And you know we're going to get into this in our episode. I don't think there's a, a member of that generation, that 60s baby boomer rock generation, whose reputation has suffered more mm. over the years than Eric Clapton. Like, his stock was sky high in the 60s, and I feel like it's gone down steadily since then. It went up again a little bit in the 90s when he had the unplug thing, and he had, like, the Jason Priestley haircut, and, <laughs> you know, he was having hits at the time. And the neck beard. Certainly was never cool, though, during that period. And But, like, when you look at his early years, he really was, like, one of the original, like, indie hipsters. You know, like, he left the Yardbirds because they were too commercial. And, of course, the Yardbirds go on to become, I think, like, a really seminal British rock band. Like, they're not as successful as, like, the Beatles or the Stones. But, like, you don't have Led Zeppelin without the Yardbirds. You don't have, like, a lot of hard rock bands, I think, without them operating off the template that the Yardbirds designed. But, like, Clapton, at least initially, was, like, didn't want any part of that. So he started playing with this guy named John Mayall, who was a British blues guy, the epitome of the, you know, purist blues. We're only going to, you know, focus on the real American stuff. We're not going to try to have pop hits. And this is where Eric Clapton really starts to make his name as like a a guitar hero. He ends up playing on the Blues Breakers record that comes out in 65, I guess known as the Beano record because he's, isn't he holding like a comic called Beano on the cover of the album.
4: Oh, yeah. He can't be bothered to look up for the photographer. He's just reading his comic book. Way too cool to look up.
3: And uh, the album is one of the great blues rock records that come out of Britain in the 60s. But, like, they're really known, the Bluesbreakers as a great live band. And that is where Eric Clapton gets this reputation where people start spray painting Clapton as God <laughs> on the walls <laughs> of London. Because they just think this dude is so cool. And that really leads to him becoming a superstar which in a way is what he didn't want in the Yardbirds but I guess maybe in a sense he felt like he was becoming famous for the right reasons with John Mayall at any rate he ends up forming one of the first I guess maybe the first supergroup in rock which is Cream it's him Jack Bruce Ginger Baker and it's funny to me because like he didn't want to play the pop trip in the Yardbirds but in Cream there is that blues bass but like they didn't play straight blues. I mean, they took it and exploded it out and it became this, I guess you could say self-indulgent display of like instrumental virtuosity. virtuosity. Yeah. Even, even though I really I really like Cream. And, you know, when I think about Clapton in the 60s, what jumps out to me is that he was always in bands and he was always offset with like equally strong personalities. And that was true certainly in The Yardbirds. It was true with John Mayall. It's the case in Cream. And then after he leaves Cream, of course, he does Blind Faith with steve winwood and i just wonder like ultimately is eric clapton just like a great side man you know like because i feel like whenever he has to be the focal point he just retreats and his music gets so much more boring and it's like if he can be in a band he can just play the guitar he can you know be a hot shot and maybe that's more suited to him and i just wonder in his own mind even if he thinks of himself that way like this guy once called a record journeyman for, <laughs> for crying out loud i mean I, I feel like that's his mentality in some way.
4: It's funny. You mentioned him earlier as being sort of one of the first indie rock guys for just the way that he sort of shunned commercial ventures. It's weird. Maybe it's just it's just a testament to how much his reputation has suffered that I don't even see him as this like paragon of like, you know, I, I've got integrity, my uh, musical integrity. I think of him now of all the bands that he's left is just thinking he was just a pain in the ass, like a prima donna back then. I feel like that's kind of the, the quotes that you get from like the John Males when he left bruise breakers. And when, when you talk to guys from the Yardbirds and stuff, it makes it makes him seem like just a big prima, too, which is really interesting. Yeah. I The pivot from wanting to leave the Yardbirds to pursue like hardcore blues to then doing cream and doing stuff like, you know, the track Wrapping Paper and even like singles like I Feel Free. It's so in the pop realm. I never really was able to figure out like how we decided, okay, now it's time to move that way because that just seems way more poppy than anything Yardsbirds were doing in 1965. I never really figured out what the change was. Yeah, it just seemed
3: like in Cream, you know, he could just be the total hotshot guitar player. And again, I think it had something to do with the fact too that he was with these two other guys who had as big of egos as he did. So like he could be a star, but again, I feel like in some way as much as he could be a prima donna, I'm sure, that his mentality is that of a sideman. I just think that when he's in that role, he shines. When he's making solo records, it just gets more and more boring. But as it is at this time, he is, I think, the preeminent guitar hero of rock music. But there's
4: another guy who's going to be coming along who, I think it's fair to say, kind of blows him out of the water. Absolutely. James Marshall Hendrix, Uh, Jimmy also had a rough upbringing in the Pacific Northwest. He grew up in poverty and his parents split when he was, uh, when he was a young boy. Uh, his mother was an alcoholic and died of complications from liver disease when Jimmy was a little boy and his father refused to take him to her funeral. (laughs) Instead, he gave uh, him a shot of whiskey and told him that this was how men deal with loss. So this is the background that he's coming from. Uh, his first instrument was a one-stringed ukulele that he found in the trash. So just think of going from that to the Jimi Hendrix that you know. It's its mind-blowing. And he eventually got a, a real guitar and used it uh, not only to learn blues tracks and Elvis songs, but also to imitate sounds that he would hear from cartoons on the TV, which actually, when you think of the stuff that he would do later on, it, it makes total sense that he was into exploring the different kinds of sounds that you could make with a guitar. He wasn't interested in just being a virtuoso. He really wanted to explore the sonic palette of what you can get out of six strings in a whammy bar. So uh, he does a stint in the army, which even just looking at pictures of him in the uniform, it's just so weird to see Uh, very quickly. Oh, Oh, it's insane. He's a paratrooper, which is pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it quickly uh, became apparent to both sides that this was a really bad fit. And he was given a... uh, an honorable discharge, even though he was unable to, I think the report read, individuals unable to conform to military rules and regulations, misses bed check, sleeps while supposed to be working, unsatisfactory duty performance.
3: So, yeah. Of course. And it's Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. Like, that's what you would want him to be doing in the military. I just want to say that, like, if Jimmy was going to be in the military, I'm glad that he was, like, falling right. out of the sky. You know, at least there's some sort of mystical <laughs> element to what he was doing. He wasn't just no. a grunt. He was flying among the stars as Jimi Hendrix oh, should be totally.
4: doing. So he gets out, he's discharged, and he pays his dues on what was then known as the Chitlin Circuit, which was a a, a series of, of venues in the South and the Northeast for, for African-American artists. And he's a backing musician primarily at this time, back and acts like the Isley Brothers and Little Richard and Curtis Knight. And he does package tours with Sam Cooke and Chuck Jackson. And he keeps getting in trouble because he's supposed to be a backing musician and he's playing like Jimi Hendrix. He's, I, I think... uh Little Richard would scream at him for playing with his teeth and stuff like that. He would just would outshine the stars. So he kept getting fired from all these, all these guys. <laughs> Have you seen the, the clip of him? He's I think he's playing with the Isley Brothers. I think it's his first filmed appearance and he's playing shotgun. And it is unreal because the Isley Brothers are out front, but then there's this, you know, guy in the back doing all the Jimi Hendrix tricks. It's it's like, you know, years before. He's got like shorter hair and the suit and everything. But it's very clearly Jimi Hendrix. It's really cool to watch. Well, and it's funny,
3: too, because eventually, you know, the Isley brothers are going to have Ernie Isley playing, essentially, Jimi Hendrix-inspired guitar. Like, eventually, a lot of these R&B and funk groups were going to have to have a Jimi Hendrix-type element to them, like, after Jimmy, of course, transformed rock and pop music when he became a big thing. But yeah, like, in the 60s, the early 60s, what he was doing wasn't really going to fly. So, like, by, like, 66 he has to start doing his own thing. And he's performing in Greenwich Village under the name Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And he's stuck in this weird predicament because he can't really play Harlem because the Harlem audiences consider him to sound too white. And yet, playing for white audiences, this black guitar player playing, again, a fusion of like rock, R&B, soul, looking ahead to what's going to be happening in hard rock and funk, American audiences really can't stand it. And The other thing, too, about Jimi Hendrix is that he ends up being part of this tradition of, like, British music fans appreciating American Hmm. music before Americans, you know, which is something that is going to be happening. Of course, it happens throughout the 60s with all the British blues bands who were really responsible for, like, introducing a generation of, like, white kids to music being made by black Americans, like If it weren't for, like, the Rolling Stones or, you know, the Yardbirds or the Animals, it's possible that a lot of white kids, like, wouldn't have been turned on to the blues. Uh, And a similar thing happens with Jimi Hendrix because he can't find an audience in America. But British people start taking notice of him. There's this woman, Linda Keith. Who I think was, was she like Keith Richards' girlfriend? Yeah, she was Keith
4: Richards' girlfriend and a model, and she was really plugged into the British rock scene at this time. And her last name is Keith. She kind of looks like (laughs) Keith Richards. So, like, Keith Richards was only
3: dating women that looked like him, which is pretty cool. It's something you can do if you're Keith Richards. She's encouraging Jimmy, though, to like come over to England. And, you know, she has some connections to like the British music scene. So, Jimmy goes over there, and that's where he becomes. A pretty big star he starts mingling with other rock stars including the guys in cream and there's this story i mean it's pretty incredible i mean it makes sense now because we know who jimi hendrix is but like at the time it seems kind of insane because like he basically went to cream i think they were having a rehearsal maybe and i think it was a live show it was a live show at a college did like he joined them on stage, or, or, or was this like
4: before the? No, gigs? this was on stage. It Was before the show. Uh, he goes up to him wow. because his manager is Chaz Chandler, who was in the Animals, and that, you know they were big in the in the British blues rock scene. And uh, and Chaz goes, yeah, hey Eric, uh, I got I got this friend with me. He loved to to jam with you. And you know the the British rock scene in the mid '60s, it's just as regimented and, and class oriented as the rest of British society at this time. I mean, there's a hierarchy, and cream. They are the cream. They are on the top. And you know no one asks to play. it, it as god. Good. No one asks to play with god. This is insane. I mean, and so they're like they're, they're just taken aback by the audacity of the request. Like clearly this is some American guy who doesn't know decorum. Like this is not like, you know, all right, fine. We'll let you come on stage and jam with us. But like th- this is weird. They're definitely like this is this is not an everyday occurrence, but they let it happen because it is so bizarre.
3: And then Jimmy ends up playing the song Killing Floor. It's a howling wolf song. And I know his rendition because this is the song he played at uh, Monterey Pop. I think it's the first song that he plays when he comes out, and it's like this electrifying like version when Jimi Hendrix plays it. It just sounds like his guitar's on fire even before he like is actually. It It sounds it like on a fire. train. Yeah, it's unbelievable, and you know I imagine it sounding something like that when he played it at this concert. And of course, Eric Clapton sees Jimi Hendrix playing Killing Floor, and he like wets his pants <laughs> immediately because it is amazing it's Jimi Hendrix and it's like an alien has come down from you know some other planet and he is the greatest thing to ever touch the guitar ever and you know when i think about the Clapton Hendrix dynamic i think about the movie uh, Amadeus you know like we have Mozart oh, and you have yeah. Salieri and Mozart is like the young hotshot and he's a genius of course Salieri is the more established Popular person, but like Salieri is cursed with this special insight into appreciating Mozart's genius. Like he can uh, see it really before anyone else. Because like even in the in Cream, like you know Hendrix is 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 just blowing minds by playing Killing Floor. But I think like Ginger Baker heard it and he was like, "Eh, I'm not really feeling it," which is a very Ginger Baker, (laughs) yeah, type of reaction. It's all show. It's all very famous. We're not we're
4: Cream. We're not all about showmanship. We're about playing. We're about virtuosity. Exactly. This guy's
3: all flash. There's no substance to what he's doing. Meanwhile, Eric Clapton, again, he's wet his pants. He's backstage. And, I mean, it seems like he's, like, almost inconsolable <laughs> because he knows that this guy is the real thing. And it's like, Clapton is a really great guitar player, but the difference between these two guys is that Clapton is a great formalist. He can play great blues. He can, like, replicate what other people have done. He can... Uh, be, I guess, the best British example of American music. And then you have Jimi Hendrix coming along. He's the real thing. Who is, he's the real thing. He's reinventing the guitar. Like, he is inventing something. He's not just sort of reviving something or preserving something. Like, this is a whole new thing, and it's going to change the world. And, like, Clapton could see that before a lot of other people could, I think.
4: There's the famous line, he's backstage after the show, after after Jimmy's just blown his mind. And he's trying to light a cigarette, and he can't because his hands are shaking. He's just so shocked. And and Chaz Chandler, Jimmy's manager, comes up to him, and Eric just goes, you didn't tell me he was that fucking good. (laughs) It's it's like Chaz Chandler
3: introduced John Wilkes Booth to (laughs) Abraham Lincoln. You know, it's like, this is the guy who's going to take you out. You know, and, like, you're going to shake each other's hand, and... You know, like like if they could have had some formal meeting ahead of time. Like that's basically the the dynamic here. Like Jimi Hendrix is John Wilkes Booth to Eric Clapton's Abraham Lincoln. And –
4: that's the way it's going to be from now on. And they both know and it. Jimmy later said he felt bad about it. He thought it was like pushy getting on. Because now he's like, you know, I love Eric. This is years later. You know, I love Eric. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I like pushed my way on stage into his set. But, you know, I was, I was young. I was trying to make an impact in the scene. And that was what I had to do. But, yeah, I guess his, his girlfriend later said that that he actually said at least that he felt bad about that. Um, so that was his, his – I think it was his first time ever playing in London. I think he had to borrow a guitar. He'd only been there for a week. But word gets around, you know, God is dead, long live Hendrix. The, it, people know that, that <laughs> exactly. he's there. And um, Chaz Chandler arranges this very well-orchestrated uh, formal debut at the Bag of Nails Club in London, which was this really hip Carnaby Street club. And, you know, like I said, word has gotten around. All the leaders of the British music scene are there in full force. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Jeff Beck, McCartney, Eric Burden from The Animals, John Mayle, and... Uh, Eric is so freaked out that he calls Pete Townsend, who he's not even particularly close to, to go with him just because he like needs backup to see this guy because he knows that that this is this is possibly the end, as you said, of his career. He's going down. Uh, so he, they all go out to see Jimmy. Everybody, I, I think uh, Pete Townsend later said that he and Clapton were so moved that they held hands. They just like clasp each other's hands in the middle of the performance because it's just. It, it, like you said, it, it's just reinventing the guitar. It's like nothing anyone has ever seen before. And every guitarist in the joint is just rattled to their core. I think Jeff Beck later said that he thought his career was over when he saw them. But everybody goes home to practice. I'll put it that way.
3: Yeah, and you alluded to this earlier. And and, and this was part of, I think, Jimmy from the beginning, him trying to recreate the sounds on the cartoon. You know, He just contextualized the instrument and... Totally different way from what his contemporaries were doing. You know, they were trying to emulate their heroes from the blues scene. Jimi Hendrix, he loved those guys too, but he was also thinking of ways that he could communicate other types of things with his guitar. And it just seemed like he had figured that out already at this point. And yeah, all these people who are the legends of, like the biggest legends of classic rock, really, that you would think, oh, they should already feel pretty assured in what they're doing. They just feel like jumping off a bridge seeing this guy. You know, it's like, we're done. We're done already. And um, with in terms of, like, the personal relationship between Clapton and Hendrix, you know, we said this earlier that, you know, in a way they were rivals because the public pitted them against each other fairly early on. But in terms of their personal relationship, it seemed like they always got, got on together pretty well. Like, there was, I think the first time that they met was, like, not long after that um, original Cream gig where, again... Hendrix murdered Clapton in front of everybody, <laughs> John Wilkes Booth style. But then they actually met. I think like Clapton walked into a restaurant where Hendrix was giving an interview. Which, by the way, well, how amazing would it have been to be in, to, to be in London at this time, where you can just like walk into a restaurant and you see Jimi Hendrix giving an interview, and then there's Eric Clapton sitting down next over to him. here, and now they're gonna have a powwow. <laughs> I mean, it's just just so amazing. But yeah, it, it does seem like. They were able to talk to each other because they were the closest thing that the other guy had to a contemporary. Like they could just get together and talk about guitars, talk about gear, talk about techniques, talk about like their favorite guitar players. And it seems like that was how they were really able to bond at that time.
4: Yeah, it's funny Clapton would later say, like, you know, it was great talking to him about music and stuff, but Jimmy had such an abstract imagination that he would go off and start talking about, like, you know, clouds in the sky and stars and everything. And it was really hard to actually, like, keep him on track and have, like, a, you know, a secular-based conversation with him, which is, you know, kind of what you want to hear
3: about Hendrix, I guess. Exactly. I wouldn't want to hear that, like, Jimmy in conversation was, like, talking about, you know, tax laws <laughs> or or, you know— Transmissions or literature or anything else. I want it. yeah, I want him just to be purely a space cadet. You know, <laughs> that's the Jimi Hendrix that we all know and love. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more rivals.
0: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con The Story of BitCon. Over this nine part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal.
1: All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm curious to get your take on this because you're a musician and I'm not. So you, I think, probably have more of an insight into this than I do. Just comparing their different playing styles. And, you know, I was saying before about Clapton, in essence, being sort of like a preservationist. Like he's someone who's studying the past, trying to carry a tradition forward. Whereas Hendrix, he has also studied those same reference points, but he's more about pushing it out and and taking it into outer space. Along with the showmanship aspect, too. I mean, he is especially early on, much more of an effusive performer. Uh, You know, he's setting his guitar on fire. (laughs) He's having sex with his amplifiers. You know, he's doing all the things that, like, rock bands are going to be doing forever after they see Jimi Hendrix. But, like, how else would you say that these two guys diverge in terms of their playing styles? Yeah,
4: I mean, I think Clapton is more reverent probably because it's a scene that is not native to him. You know, he was not not a black kid born in the United States. You know, not to put too fine a point on it. And so he, for all the reasons like we mentioned about him wanting to leave the Yardbirds because it was getting too poppy and too commercial, I think he he wanted to be a stylist, whereas Jimmy, like you said, was was pushing it out. And Jimmy's main stock and trade was for years just as a straight R&B backing musician, you know. And so by the time that we got to know him as Jimi Hendrix's guitar god, he was really bored with just straight blues. I think the only real straight 12-bar blues type song that he ever recorded was Red House. And so instead, I think Pete Townsend had a really great way of describing. He married the blues with the transcendent joy of psychedelia. Um, I think he kind of made Clapton and others in the scene know that kind of their their act was sort of more old hat. And there's something else that I really love about uh, Hendrix's stuff. I mean, showmanship aside, I mean, maybe this is getting a little too granular, is that Hendrix started off, as I said, a backing musician. And so those guys were mostly doing rhythm guitar. And whereas the the front guy was playing lead, like single line bends and stuff on the lead guitar, Clapton was known for doing that. He was kind of the guy out front putting the guitar embroidery on top. Whereas Hendrix could not only do those fills, but he would also play sort of more polyphonic stuff. He would hit chords in between playing the solos, which is, so it sounds like you have almost two people playing at once, which is, you know, incredible. So his sense of rhythm is really one of the hallmarks of Hendrix's playing. And he would later say, he said about Clapton, you know, I-, I wish he would play more chords. You know, the guy doesn't, that's not really what he does. Eric Clapton's a great guitarist and we think along the same lines, but I'm not sure he's playing exactly what he wants to, he later said. I was, He said, I was jamming with Eric the other day and it was pretty nice, but I wanted to hear him bring out some chords. So yeah, I think that he thought that, well, yeah, Jimi Hendrix saying that Clapton doesn't play enough chords is a very Jimi Hendrix power move.
3: It's like, yeah, it's pretty good playing with him. You know, it's like, all right. It, it, it just sounds like Michael Jordan playing basketball <laughs> with like the JV team. It's like, yeah, oh, it's pretty good. But I couldn't really do everything I, I that I could normally do, you know, because this guy is, I think, you know, the thing with Clapton, I always think like his style is maybe cleaner. Yeah. You know, it, it's a little less cluttered and which is like, again, I, I think in a lot of the band situations that he's been in. That works really well, but yeah, with Jimi Hendrix, you just feel like sometimes he's playing like three or four different guitars at once. I mean, there's just so much going on sonically, it's just overwhelming, and you don't necessarily get that influence with Clapton. Although, I think, is it fair to say that, like, in the short run, that like Clapton was trying to play like Hendrix in Cream? I mean, because I, because when I look at Hendrix, I don't really see any influence there, I don't think he was ever really trying to do what Clapton did, you know, even when he was playing straight up blues, like you mentioned Red House, for instance, I don't really hear a lot of Clapton influence in that. Whereas if I look at what Clapton ends up doing on like Wheels of Fire or Disraeli Gears, I wonder if like he had maybe Hendrix in his head a little bit.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Jack Bruce later said a couple days after they first saw Hendrix perform, they had a cream rehearsal and Eric shows up. Trying to do all the Hendrix tricks, he's trying to play with his teeth. He does all these showboating moments at rehearsal. He's like trying to to you know figure out how to be like like Hendrix. And then a couple of weeks later, they show up to a gig, and and uh, Clapton has his big perm, you know Hendrix style perm. He starts shopping at the same like psychedelic clothes stores that that Hendrix does. So he was pretty unabashed in his uh, in his worship of Hendrix at this time. Um, I would say for the other way around, probably the biggest thing that Clapton did for Hendrix. And he probably would have stumbled on this anyway. It was probably hooking him up with with Jim Marshall and with Marshall Stacks, which was, you know, such a, a crucial component to uh, to Jimmy's sound. It, Clapton started using those early with, like, the Blues Breakers stuff. But, yeah, that, I would say, would probably be the closest thing I could say to Clapton's influence on Hendrix. And even that is something he probably would have discovered on his own pretty soon.
3: I mean, it seems like the biggest thing that Clapton and other British rock stars did for Jimi Hendrix was just giving him an audience— that he couldn't get in America, that again, he was a struggling musician in America playing Greenwich Village, you know, not really making a name for himself. Then he's able to go to London and, you know, just blow away all these British rock stars. And eventually, there is a buzz about him that starts building in America, people are hearing about this guy, and then he ends up playing Monterey Pop. and, and, And that's the big gig for him.
4: Yeah, I mean, he was welcomed into the scene pretty quickly. I mean, there wasn't a—in fact, I can't really think of anyone that was trying to, like, you know, jealousy took over and shut him out. He was given a place—he needed a place to stay, so he ends up crashing at Ringo Starr's apartment in London. He's given gigs on on package tours with a young uh, Cat Stevens, who was, you know, then in his pop star incarnation. He's embraced pretty quickly, and as you said, the buzz from England is very quickly heard over in America— and when uh, John Phillips is putting together the Monterey Pop Festival, he calls Paul McCartney and says, you know, well, the Beatles like to play. So, well, we're not really performing right now, but you should get this guy, Jimi Hendrix. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was on Paul McCartney's recommendation that, uh, that Jimi got the Monterey gig. And, you know, I, I always wondered, Clapton had sort of always been around and rose through the ranks and kind of he was sort of always there. Jimmy in England and in the United States kind of had this element of surprise where he just kind of exploded. And you definitely see that at Monterey where, you know, he came out and people didn't know what to expect. And, you know, there's this guy with these monster, massive hands coming out playing Killin' Floor. And like you said, it sounds like a freight train coming through the auditorium. And then he sets his guitar on fire. I mean, it's just, he knew how to make an entrance, which is something that I think Clapton never really had. He never had that, that breakout moment. It was a slow burn, whereas Hendrix was explosive whenever he he entered the scene on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, and I think also
3: Hendrix's early music just was similar enough to Cream that you couldn't help but put the Jimi Hendrix experience next to Cream and, and to compare them. You know, they're both power trios. They're both led by these hotshot guitar players. They have very busy rhythm sections, you know, behind them, you know, making this, like, fairly catchy, but, like, You know, also bluesy, psychedelic rock. And in 1967, you have, again, I mentioned this earlier, you have the album Disraeli Gears by Cream, which ends up being their most successful record. And that's the record that has like Sunshine of Your Love on it, for instance. And there's a bunch of other like radio classics on there. Strange Brew is on that record. I'm a big fan of Disraeli Gears. I like Cream in general. I think that's a great record. But then you have Are You Experienced by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, another Power Trio record. And what is better than Are You Experienced? You know, like there's not many records by anyone that are better than that record. And I mean, that album by itself is like a greatest hits album. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Purple Haze, Foxy Lady, you know, The Wind Cries Mary, uh, Stone Free. I mean, every song on that record, I feel like is, is famous. And the sound of it too To me, it's like you listen to Cream, and it sounds like the 60s. And I love that sound. But, like, Jimi Hendrix's experience, it sounds like the 70s and 80s and 90s and, like, the future of hard rock, essentially. Like, that record and, like, the early Led Zeppelin records, I feel like, are the albums that rock bands still want to sound like. You know, like, just sonically, they sound so amazing. And, uh... Eric Clapton was not going to come out well in that equation, you know, because of what Jimmy was able to do in basically the same lane.
4: Right. You know, it's funny. And and the sound was so fully formed, too. I mean, you listen to Fresh Cream. It doesn't sound anything like Disraeli Gears as far as I'm concerned. There's something they're still sort of finding their way, whereas Hendricks' debut is, you know, that classic sound immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah,
3: there's something about their playing and also just like the production styles of those albums again, like the way that the Hendrix records sound, they're so forward thinking. And I think that continues as both of their careers progress. I mean, in 68 in, in and, you know, they're both putting out double records. You have Cream putting out Wheels of Fire, which I think is a great record. You know, you got White Room on that record. Huge hit. I think Jimi Hendrix said that he wished he wrote that song. Isn't that right? Yeah, he said he wished that song. And then Jack Bruce very sort of gallantly said, well, you know, I ripped it off from you anyway. <laughs> right. So even in a moment of triumph for Eric Clapton, there's something sort of undercutting him at the end there. But yeah, you have Wheels of Fire, really good record. But then Jimi Hendrix makes Electric Ladyland, maybe the best double record ever, certainly in the conversation with like on Main Street and Sign of the Times by Prince, you know, like. Just a masterful record that when you listen to uh, Wheels of Fire next to that album, it
4: just makes Wheels of Fire sound small. Right. I mean, this, you see this again and again with the Clapton versus Hendrix thing. It's like Clapton, by any other metric, would be just massive, huge, should feel great. And then you have this crazy outlier that is Jimi Hendrix, and it just dwarfs whatever he's done all throughout the 60s and beyond. I think Wheels of Fire— I, I I think it's my favorite cream album just for the just the, the breadth of it and just like you said white room amazing track but yeah i can't hold the candle to electric ladyland
3: so around that time it's funny like how these things work out because i mean cream falls apart in 68 and like the Jimi hendrix experience i mean they fell apart Not
4: long after around it. the same yeah. time didn't they yeah, and they they paid this great uh, cream broke up first, and they did their sort of farewell tour at the um, the famous show at the Royal Albert Hall, and they put out their last album, Goodbye. And the uh, news of Cream's uh, demise hits newsstands in uh, in January '69, and uh, the Hendrix Experience, which are you know also on their last legs, are playing a show with Lulu uh, to Sir with Love uh, singer Lulu uh, on this like really not that hip BBC show. I don't know how they got booked for that, and. It's a live television broadcast, and they stop their song mid-set and say, you know, we want to we want to shout out Cream. We just announced, announced that they're uh, breaking up today. We want to uh, play a tribute to them. So they play Sunshine of Your Love. And this incredible, searing version that, that goes on so long that it actually, because it's a live television broadcast, they don't just cut it. It actually ends up delaying the news broadcast later that night because it just goes on longer than the show time limit is allowed. Incredible showboating version Uh, which you could, again, read as either a beautiful tribute to Eric and his now former band or just, like, Hendrix dancing on Cream's grave, depending on how you want to look at it. I think
3: what's crucial at this time is that, you you know, you have Hendrix and you have Clapton. They're both free of their bands that, you know, really made them huge stars. And I think this is where they start to diverge because Clapton, again, in Cream, it seemed like He was trying to do a Jimi Hendrix thing. He even had, again, like he had his own like white dude afro (laughs) and cream for a while, which is kind of awkward to see when you look at old photos now. But then when he goes into blind faith and then especially when he starts making the Derek and the Dominoes record, it seems like instead of following Hendrix, he's going back to his American roots. And in a way is, I guess, looking at, you know, groups like Delaney and Bonnie and the Allman Brothers as being his new sort of artistic North Star. Whereas Hendrix, he's going to go into Band of Gypsies, moving in more sort of like a funk, almost jazz direction. Of course, we're not going to know the full fruition of that because he's going to pass away tragically uh, in 1970. But Clapton, with Derek and the Dominoes, he makes Layla. And, you know, I think as a solo artist, know, I've said this before in this episode, I think Eric Clapton is a pretty boring solo artist. There aren't many of his records that he's made under his own name that I really love. I mean, I like Slow Hand. I like 461 Ocean Boulevard. There's a couple records here maybe after that that are okay. Old but Sock. Like, to me, like Layla, yeah, right. Old Sock is a masterpiece. <laughs> but in my mind, there's no question that Layla is, like, his higher watermark as an artist. And to me, like, what separates that from, like, a lot of his work is that I just feel like Eric Clapton is kind of lazy on his own. I I, I think he devolves into this sort of, like middle of the road, like journeyman blues stick that as he got older, it just got more and more dull. And when you listen to Layla, you know, it just sounds like he has something at stake. There's a real fire in his playing. And of course he was in love with George Harrison's wife and he was starting to use hard drugs. And I mean, I think everyone knows that story, but I mean, am I being too hard on him? I mean, I just feel like there's something in Layla that he didn't have later on. Maybe in some respect, It was because he still had Hendrix there being someone that he wanted to impress. I I just wonder if that had something to do with it.
4: Yeah, Hendrix there and also bringing Dwayne Allman into the mix because I think for a number of weeks or maybe even a month, the sessions for the album were torturous and really not much was accomplished and he he didn't really have somebody to spar with. And then when they brought Dwayne Allman into the mix, that was when the sessions really took off. So he definitely, he needs, it's like what you're saying earlier, he's a a side man. He's best as a side man. He needs somebody to, to sort of spar with. And also- Getting back to, you know, whatever Clapton does, it's never quite good enough. He's just cursed with that. You've got, he always has Hendrix above him. And in this case with um, Patty Boy, George Harrison's wife, you know, I mean, you're, you're Eric Clapton, you're in Cream, you're a guitar God. You should be feeling pretty good. You could probably have any woman you want, but not the wife of a Beatle. You know what I mean? Like he just seems perpetually cursed to have like, to do really great and then just be topped by this crazy outlier situation. Uh, which, I I mean, I wonder how much that factors into just his lazy playing. It's just kind of like, you know, Eeyore or something. Just like, oh, man, no matter what I do. Yeah, it's a chicken or the egg thing with him where, like, is he in this
3: perpetual bridesmaid's role (laughs) because of his mentality or does he have that mentality because fate relegates him to that? I don't know what it is. And again, it's it's a little weird to make that argument about someone like Eric Clapton who – Uh, you know, is he a billionaire? I don't know. I mean, he's like, I'm sure he has like hundreds of millions of dollars in his bank account. He's a very successful musician. He's a huge rock star. So it's not like, you know, he's just some obscure guy living in a shack somewhere. I mean, he has done very well for himself over the years. But again, I just, I always feel like with Clapton, there is this sense of like squandered potential. Um, And maybe I feel that way because I feel like Layla the Derek and the Dominos album is so brilliant. And to me, it's an example of like what happens when this guy's really applying himself. Of course, the thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Jimi Hendrix ended up dying during the sessions for Layla. And one of the most powerful songs on that record is Clapton's cover of Little Wing from Axis Bold is Love, which I think, did they record that after or before Hendrix I think it was died? Just before, like weeks before. So it was very strange because you listen to it and it almost sounds like it could have been recorded after Hendrix died. It's a very emotional, kind of bombastic version of the song. But it ends up being this sort of weirdly prescient track that they recorded for the record. It ends up being a posthumous tribute to Hendrix. And in a way, it kind of plays into what we were saying of Hendrix being up here and Clapton being the Salieri figure (laughs) who admires the guy up there. You know, because it's like, I guess Hendrix played Sunshine of Your Love on that show, but he never, like, recorded Clapton songs just for the hell of it on his records. You know, like, it was pretty clear that he was his own man. I like Clapton, he's my friend, but, like, I'm in my own class.
4: Right. I mean, it's very it's very telling that Clapton making this monster album that I think, it was recorded late enough in the sessions that I think he, he knew that it was going to be, you know, a, a substantial piece of work. They still made space for a tribute to, to, to Hendrix on there. I think it was, it was a very... Uh, telling a very generous thing to do. And when you look at, like, Clapton's reaction
3: to Hendrix's death, I mean, there's, like, sincere grief there. I mean, it really did destroy him.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this, really, there was this unreleased documentary called, what was it, Eric Clapton and his Rolling Hotel that was done in the late 70s. And he's talking, this is 10 years after Hendrix has died. And Clapton is still welling up. I mean, choked up. It's talking about, Hendrix's death 10 years later he was supposed to see him he bought a uh, a gift of a, of a left-handed Stratocaster which was hard to come by in, in England in 1970 and they were supposed to go to a Sly Stone show and uh and they didn't end up meeting and Clapton's just looking at the camera 10 years later saying and I could see him and I couldn't get to him at the concert and then whack the next day he was gone and I was left with that left-handed Stratocaster oh my god I mean he's it's heartbreaking to see him tell the story and that was an awful year for him, too, as his, his grandfather, who he knew as his father, died that year, and, and Patty ended up not leaving George Harrison for him at that time. So he, that was really the year where he fell deeper into his heroin addiction and just kind of hold himself away for a few years there, too. But yeah, the, Jimmy's death really sent him off on a, a horrible spiral.
3: And, you know, even now, like, you know, it's been 50 years since Jimi Hendrix died and, you know, we've had a lot of time to get over it, I think, by now. But, you know, for me, I still don't think there's a bigger tragedy in rock history than Jimi Hendrix's death at the age of 27. I mean, it's like, just try to imagine, like, if Miles Davis had died at age 27, you know, that that would have meant he would have died in 1953. You know, just think of all the music that, like, Miles Davis wouldn't have made if he had died at that age, you know, and I really think you could make a comparable case for Jimi Hendrix, because again, we're talking about three studio albums, you know, like he did not have much time to build a legacy. And yet what he did in that short window that he was uh, famous, you know, it's, it continues to reverberate in rock music. Um, Of course, we go back to the burnout versus fade away argument. And I'm sure there are, are a lot of people who look at Jimi Hendrix as this sort of like perfect musician because he died at age 27. Like he never had his bad 80s period. He never made like goofy synth rock records. You know, he didn't like appear in Michelob commercials. He didn't do like the lame unplugged album. You know, all these things that say Eric Clapton did when, you know, he got into his 80s period and got into the 90s. And it is an interesting, I guess, brain experiment to think about like what would have happened – if Jimi Hendrix had lived um, and like what kind of career would he have had, would he have continued to be brilliant or would he have like faded away like Eric Clapton did? And then you can do the other way where you imagine like what if Eric Clapton had died right after Layla came out, you know, because he could have died. I mean, he was not in a very good way. He was, you know, using a lot of drugs. He was drinking a lot. You know, he wasn't really any healthier than jimi hendrix was at that time how would we think of eric clapton would eric clapton be this like romantic figure now like that oh he made this record for george harrison's wife because he was so in love with her and then he died you know like what? she said no and then he went off and and yeah
4: and then died and then and yeah the sorrows and died
3: yeah How would that have affected the record? You know, how we think of it. Like, why does love have to be so sad? You know, that's a song on Layla. Like, how would we hear that now if Clapton had died? Uh, And Jimi Hendrix was the one doing tributes to Clapton. it's, it's It's sort of a ghoulish, you know, brain experiment to play. But I think it's
4: something you can't help doing if you care about these two artists. Yeah, I mean, it's like listening to Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. You know, and hearing rehab now. You can't hear it without, you know, divorcing it from knowing what happened later on. And and it it, it definitely imbues it with this, you know, horrific, ghoulish, as you said, the the tragedy that was to come. Yeah. I mean, and his legacy if if he died in say, you know, January 1972 would have been incredible. I mean, going from Yardbirds to Bluesbreakers to Cream to Blind Faith to having this one killer album with Derek and the Dominoes. I mean, yeah, it would have been a an insane legacy. Uh, in that same window, I think, because what, Hendrix, I think died almost four years, almost to the day that he arrived in London. I mean, he only had four years to do everything that he did. And I think Clapton in that same period was also incredibly prolific. It was an incredible run for both
3: of them. I think the thing that must be stated clearly for the record here, lest people think that we're glamorizing early death too much in this episode, is that I think fading away is a privilege. Mm. And it's something that, people should ultimately aspire to. And that was something, you know, like when I wrote about these two guys in my book, that's what I landed on. You know, because, you know, Eric Clapton to me has always been someone who's been like easy to clown, easy to make fun of. You know, it's something that people still do to this day. I mean, like Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, (laughs) I interviewed her this year. She took tons of shots at Eric Clapton. And, you know, people are going to go for that because, you know, he's done a lot of like questionable things in his career. But, I wish that I could hear Jimi Hendrix's bad records. You know, I would give anything to hear a synth rock record that Jimi Hendrix made in 1983. You know, I would love to see his like embarrassing MTV Video Music Awards appearances, you know, (laughs) where it was like him and like Ja Rule, you know, performing a song in like 1997. You know, I think that would have been... Amazing to see, like, and it's sad to me that, like, we weren't given that opportunity, you know, because, again, ultimately, yeah, it's, it makes for a more perfect discography if you die tragically when you're young, but, you know, nobody wants to die before their time, I mean, that's a sad story, and... You know, we all get lame. We all get older. We all get fatter. We all get, you know, more lame as we age. It's one of the great things about being alive, you know. And it's too, it's sad to me that Jimi Hendrix didn't have uh, that privilege in his life.
4: Yeah, the narrative of the artist's life, I think, is is such a, a big question, and how you separate that from their music. But yeah, at the end of the day, you're right. We are talking about human beings here. We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. <laughs> sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world.
0: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest.
2: Where are you taking me?
1: Are you death?
2: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So we now reach the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. And again, I feel like it has to be said that like these guys were not rivals in the sense that we normally talk about in the show. You know, they weren't uh, feuding. You know, they weren't throwing shoes at each other. They weren't saying mean things about each other in the press. They were friends. But they've taken on this stature of being rivals just because of us and the audience wanting to compare their different guitar styles, which we've done in this episode, and also just looking at them as signifiers of, of of different ideas of like how to age as a musician. And with Eric Clapton, again, it's the idea of fading away, which is not a very romantic thing to talk about. The idea that as you get older, maybe you aren't as artistically, artistically relevant as you were when you were in your 20s. You know, you're not making... The same sort of fiery records that you did at that time. Um, but you're still allowed to live and, and to evolve. And, you know, with Eric Clapton, you know, I don't think anything that he's done later in his career should obscure how good he was in the 60s. Uh, as a member of the Yardbirds, the Bluesbreakers, Cream, Blind Faith, playing with Delaney and Bonnie as a sideman, and then going into Derek and the Dominoes. Um His work in the context of bands, for me, is his best work. And it's music that I still turn to, I think, is really good. The records he made on his own, I think, are another story. But this is the pro side, so I'll (laughs) ignore that for now. I think there's still a lot of music that Eric Clapton made that um, deserves to be discussed in terms of like the great guitar music that's ever been made in rock.
4: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he's probably the most accessible guitarist of the two. I'd say he's much more precise and restrained. Some might say tasteful player than Hendrix, who... You know, obviously, it was flashier, but ultimately sloppier. I think he would—he's sort of like the Neil Young of like guitar virtuosos. I think it was less about the notes and more about the feel. And he would—I think he said in a Dick Cavett appearance—you know—I I never practice. It's just I always like to jam. It's hard for me to remember any notes because I'm constantly trying to create other things, uh, which you know is part of his brilliance. But I think Clapton was more of a a hardcore student of the blues, and you know, some people would maybe label him a copyist, but you know, still an incredible player. I think it's unfair uh, to really ding him for how much he borrowed from the blues because Hendrix did the same thing. And uh, I also, this is maybe a controversial opinion. I think that Clapton's a better singer than Hendrix. I don't know. There's something more soulful about his voice. What do you think? I I like just Clapton's kind of bluesy wail. I think that Hendrix, for all of his incredible gifts as a guitarist, kind of more like talk song his way through a lot of his work and it's kind of mumbled, but I don't know, maybe that's... Yeah, I mean, I don't... I don't even think
3: that's controversial. I mean, I think, yeah, like as a pure singer, I think Clapton uh, from the beginning was uh, just better technically than Hendrix was. I mean, I I like the sound of Hendrix's voice. I think he sounds cool on the mic. But yeah, like he he wasn't really a singer. He famously said that like he didn't have the courage to sing at all until he heard Bob Dylan, (laughs) you know, like he was a huge Bob Dylan fan. And like, what's like, well, if this guy's singing, then I can sing too. Yeah, I mean, I think with Clapton, you know, for the longest time, I think he was fairly regarded as like the most overrated rock musician of, you know, to come out of the 60s. And now there's like a weird thing where I almost feel like he's like underrated. You know, I feel like, you know, it's like him and The Doors are like the two (laughs) big 60s institutions that like people always clown, you know, they always dunk on those. And I think that they both have at this point sort of underappreciated charms Um, so that would be my defense of Clapton. If we're going over to the Hendrix side, I mean, look, it's Jimi Hendrix. I mean, what more do you need to say? I think if you look at the true geniuses of 20th century music, you're going to talk about Miles Davis, you're going to talk about Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, James Brown. And I think you put Jimi Hendrix on that very prestigious list as well. I mean, he is the very best of the best. And, you know, again, it's sad to me, you know, a half century after his death that he wasn't allowed to fully blossom, you know, because we, we only got a small taste of what he could do. And, you know, I think that rock music generally suffered tremendously because he died so young. In the same way, again, if Miles Davis had died at 27, I think the loss to jazz would have been, you know, just unfathomable. And we'll never know what we lost because he died so young. But the work that he gave us is pretty freaking great, you know? And I think it stands up, you know, all these years later.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, where do you even begin to to praise Hendrix? I mean, I think Ginger Baker said, yeah, Eric was a very, very good guitar player. Hendrix was a force of nature. You know, he's, he's a genius. I mean, if you define genius as being able to do something that no one else can do and do it very, very, very well to the highest level of proficiency, I mean... Yeah, Hendrix is incredible. Clapton may have had more taste and restraint or whatever, especially as he matured. But to Hendrix, it was bigger than the guitar. You know, it was, it, I think Clapton, it was all about sort of the instrument and what came out of his fingers. But with Hendrix, it was just all about the sound and the soundscape that he was able to do. I mean, you really wonder what he could have done because the his sort of musical laboratory, Electric Ladyland Studios in New York, opened like right before he died. And you really do wonder what he would have been able to do with his own, you know, laboratory like that. Um, also, I feel like for all of his guitar pyrotechnics and virtuosity, we don't talk about Hendrix as a songwriter enough. Like, I just think that the number of songs that he wrote, just regardless of how well he played them is truly crazy. I mean, if you go through Clapton's discography, there's really not that many transcendent songs that that he himself wrote, you know? I mean, I feel like a lot of the things like stuff that we think of him playing up with Cream was a lot of like Jack Bruce's riffs and stuff. So I think that Hendrix as a songwriter beats Clapton hands down.
3: Oh, yeah. And it's a shame that we didn't spend more time on that because, you know, if you talk so much about him as a guitar player, it almost sounds like a prog rock thing where it's just <laughs> about how his technique is great. And we were just marveling at his virtuosity when, you know, this guy wrote like Foxy Lady, like one of the most primal rock songs ever. He wrote, vo- you know, Voodoo Child Slat Return. You know, he wrote Machine Gun, you know, credible protest Fire. song. Um and also him as a, as an arranger, like him or him as an interpreter of other people's songs. I mean, All Along the Watchtower, one of his most famous songs is a Bob Dylan song. And even Bob Dylan now plays it the way Jimi Hendrix played it, <laughs> you know, because he took this thing and he just arranged the hell out of it and like made it his own. So, yeah, definitely he was the complete package. And yeah, you just think of like, where was he going to go as a composer, you know, as his musical outlook expanded? It's it really boggles the mind, you know, what was lost when he died. Um, but, you know, like when we look at these two guys together, you know, again, you know, like they weren't rivals, but I think they do amount to like a, phys- a philosophical equation about life. Like, you know, in life and in art, sometimes, you know, burning out is better for your legacy if you're concerned with sort of like a romantic idea of of, of youth and, and of vitality. But clearly we should all aspire to fade away. Like, as I get older, I look forward to being as lame as I can be. I want to break <laughs> my old sock when I'm in my 70s, the way that Eric Clapton did. You know, I look forward to that uh, because, you know, that's just a part of life. And uh, it's something that should be embraced, I think. I want to make
4: my album with Phil Collins. I want to make my August. <laughs> you know, I want to give the final word to Jimmy. He once said, you know, there's no best guitarist. There are so many styles in music. It's a matter of taste. Exactly. So is it fair to say that these guys weren't like Crosstown
3: Traffic, that they were uh, in some way running in parallel with each other? I'm trying to think of a Jimi Hendrix song where there's a parallel. I'm sure I'll think of it after this episode. Or tweet at us. Let me know if there was a better classic rock reference I could have made at the end of this episode.
4: Steven, I think they were both fire. Ah, there There you go. go. go.
3: That works as well. My mind was a purple haze, if you will, (laughs) uh, trying to come up with a good joke. At the end of this episode, I think... That is a good way to end it. So thank you for listening to this episode of Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week.
4: Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Chacon and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtar, And I'm Stephen Haydn. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the Story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am
1: the ferryman. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown.